Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Don't forget, you can listen to my Times Radio show live on Times Radio for free on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Coming up today, we bring you uh, the big thing and the columnist panel. Today's big thing is Times Radio's budget airline. We fly around the world to see how the economy is looking in other countries ahead of Jeremy Hunt's first budget, just to see if we can pick up any tips uh, for him. So that's coming up in just a moment. First, though, as ever, we kick off with The Columnist Panel. The Columnists with Libby Rachie, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio. And we say a very good morning to Libby Purvis. Morning, Libby. Good morning. And good morning to Rachel. Morning, Rachel. Morning. Go on then, let's talk about Gary Lineker for as brief a time as we possibly can. <laughs> he is going to be back on the telly this week, this weekend, apparently. Uh, the BBC has decided to have a review of its Twitter rules. Uh, Gary can tweet whatever he likes. Um, Libby, I can't help thinking if they just announced this on Friday, we wouldn't have had 48 hours of football with no commentary over the weekend. No, but on the other hand, I'm slightly inspired by this I am Sporticus business. Because <laughs> as you perfectly well know in media, you know, if, if one of us becomes the wounded lion, generally the others kind of edge away, <laughs> looking in the other direction, <laughs> humming lightly, especially if there's any kind of accusation. And I thought I thought the fact that all his mates really, really cared, you know, on quite wide basis was important. You know, I still think that the tweet was ill ill phrased and ill judged. And I think the BBC is not, as I've written this morning, has never been very good at telling its big names where they get off. Um, and it's it's a useful talent if you can do that running the BBC. Uh, but uh, I'm quite pleased. If it, I mean, uh, it's a huge pleasure for so many people, match of the day. It's not one for me, but you know, it, it is It is for a lot of people. And I, I didn't like the idea that people were being deprived of it, especially the poor people who had to watch Bargain Hunt instead of some match the other day. <laughs> <laughs> Completely different audience. So distressing. Although, although Match of the Day on Saturday night got 500,000 more people than normal. Uh, I think one of them was included me because I tuned in to see what it was like. Well, it was kind of a, what's this weird thing going to be, isn't yeah. it? It was a, a moment of TV history in a strange way. I thought it, it reminded me a bit of, and it's been a long time since I've played a computer game, but sort of when you were loading up FIFA 98, <laughs> all you got was just sort of the noise of football just playing at the back. It was a bit like that. But I wonder what you could do with all TV shows. You know, because actually Strictly... If you watch Strictly Back, you do fast forward all the waffle of them laughing in village yeah. halls and rehearsal rooms and the judges. You just want the dancing. I think you could. I think all TV shows could be sped up. Like Fifteen this. minutes. Yeah, everything could be fifty minutes. You just want the dancing from Strictly. Uh, you just want the you know the the cake being dropped on Bake Off. Just cut out all the rubbish. That's what it's I'm... actually just try watching real life instead of television because there's no commentary on real life. So perhaps that's what we should just be doing. That's a terrible thing when you go and watch football matches over your children. You miss the goal and then there's no replay. There's no replay. Yeah. That's a good point. Unless there's a really pushy dad who's filming it all for you uh, and he can play it back. Um, 
Rachel, I'm not sure we're any closer, really, to what BBC impartiality really means. No, I think they're really scared of their own shadow. That was what was so interesting to me about this, that after the sort of Boris Johnson, slightly mafia state era, where they were being constantly harangued for being um, liberal, metropolitan elite, they now just seem to have lost all confidence about who they are. And yeah. it was the sort of mixed messages. So on the one hand, you've got Alan Sugar being able to say whatever he wants, Karen Brady, an actual conservative peer, um, you know, the chairman of the BBC, a Tory donor, but then Gary Lineker getting into trouble, a sports commentator, sports presenter, whatever yeah. he is, not... I don't think... If this was a presenter on the Today programme, a news channel, then that's one thing. Yeah. But I do think the way it's backfired is quite interesting. It shows that the culture war really is toxic. It goes wrong when you get engaged in it. And it's the same with Nicola Sturgeon. I think people are absolutely sick to the back teeth of culture war politics. And that's what's kind of gone wrong here for everyone. I was struck, Debbie, um, over the enormous amount of coverage that there was, the BBC obviously went out to Vox Pop people about the BBC, <laughs> and they'd obviously really struggled to find anyone who was all het up about it. They just thought, well, you know, he can... He can you can talk about the football. Uh, I can separate the two. Most people are able to separate the two things in their mind. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. They, uh, it most people really don't mind nearly as much as journalists do and Tory MPs do. <laughs> that, that's true of uh, quite a lot of things. I suppose for the interest of uh, complete this, Tim Davy, uh, Director General of the BBC, has been speaking to the BBC after days of the BBC saying nobody from the BBC would speak to the BBC. Here is uh, the Director General of the BBC speaking to the BBC. Uh, I've always said we need to take proportionate action. For some people, by the way, we've taken too severe action. Others think. We're being too lenient. One of the joys of this affair is there'd never been an easy solution, but asking Gary to step back off air was, I think, a significant thing. And now we look forward with this agreement moving forward. What we've agreed, and I've spent time talking to Gary, and we've had lots of discussion, is that between now and when the review reports, our, um, Gary will abide by the editorial guidelines. And um, that's where we are. There we are. Rachel. I just keep thinking of W1A and I keep the whole thing, I just keep imagining the crisis management meeting on W1A and yeah. what they'd be going around. I mean, it's just the whole thing is absurd. And as they all Going fell, forward, going backwards. You going know, forward, going... yeah. If we could circle back on that one. Yeah. Um, yeah, what's Mark Chapman doing? <laughs> but I think there's probably enough Gary Lineker. It's all sorted now. He's back on the screens and we await his next uh, tweet. Let's talk about something potentially more important. Uh, the budget on Wednesday, where the Chancellor will set out tax and spend for the whole country, rather than just for Gary Lineker, uh, including plans to get, uh, it's what is being called the back-to-work budget. Uh, he wants to, uh, to to get particularly older workers, returnees-ships, returnerships. Seems like a horrible phrase. Um, Rachel, is this going to work, do you think? Well, it's obviously really important. So with the Times Health Commission, we, we commissioned some research right at the beginning of our inquiry, which found that ill health is costing the economy £150 billion a year. So if the Chancellor can turn that around, that's a huge amount of money that potentially could be raised. And also people given a sort of purpose in life again, got back into work. That's a good thing. Problem is they're talking about sort of work coaches and trying to encourage people rather than actually dealing with the root underlying causes. And yeah. the government is still 
absolutely terrified of anything that might smack of the nanny state in terms of tackling the obesity crisis, or which is one of the main issues. And they cut funding for mental health services, which is one of the other uh, main problems which are driving this epidemic of ill health. So I think they need to deal with the real causes rather than just the symptoms. And Libby, there's a slight problem with this whole conversation about getting people back to work because there's sort of two very distinct groups. There are people who through ill health off the back of COVID have found themselves living on benefits. And there's another group, the early retirees, people who've decided to move away from the... And the two things get a bit muddled up because the, the early retirees being tried to be coached back to work in some way is a slightly more entertaining story, whereas the, the, the people on long-term sickness benefit are a much tougher group to crack. Well, uh, having quite a lot of people in, in my sort of age group and, and a bit younger even than my age group who have done the early retiring thing, the best way to go for the coax people back to work is simply the cost of living crisis because you do spend an awful lot of money if you're not going into work. You know, it's one of those, it's one of those, those curious things that unless you've lost a big commuting cost, you do pick up a lot of other small sort of entertainment costs just to keep yourself amused. So I think the cost of living crisis is changing that gradually. I'm much more worried about the other lot uh, who claim or Mm. are suffering sickness. And I would love to know, Rachel, whether you broke it down, how much of this sickness is depression and anxiety? Because those things, a lot of, you know, people will say, I, I can't work, you know, or my, my daughter can't work, my brother can't work, you know, he's got anxiety, you know, he suffers from depression. This really needs to be looked at. And I don't know how, how much of this sickness is actually sort of mild disability due to obesity or whatever, yeah. or long COVID, and how much is mental I mean, that really does need thinking about and quite carefully. And, you know, GPs should have access to all sorts of help and services for people for whom that's the problem. There's a huge amount of it is mental health. I don't think anyone has the actual breakdown, but um, we should definitely try and find it for the Health Commission. Even within the NHS, I was really interested last week, I was looking at the figures on sick days lost to ill health among health workers. And there's hundreds of thousands a month for mental ill health for doctors and nurses who are still traumatised from the pandemic. So it cuts across all professions and all types of work. And definitely, I think the mental health side is as important as the physical health and a few life coaches and you know coaxing people off the golf course kind of misses the point on yeah that. i think that's that's the problem and it, partly because i suppose it's probably easier although probably uh, less uh, less economically successful uh, talking the economy here's a question uh libby when was the last time you bought an alco pop Oh, well, not too long ago, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very shocked. You're talking about this basket of goods. Yes, is so this is... Be, um... It's supposed to be a portrait of what it is the nation buys. And, and interestingly, lots of frozen berries have been added to the basket yes. now because everyone's making smoothies. Oh, yeah, right. You know, for about <laughs> 10 minutes they are. Uh, and the Alco Pops are dropping because we're, we're all such wonderful, healthy people. I, I, I like the odd Alco Pop. I do. Um, mainly tins of Pims. Yeah, Ooh, I have. There we are. Yeah. So this is send yeah, them around. This send is them the uh, obviously lots of discussion about uh, the rate of inflation and the way that the Office of National Statistics uh, calculates it is they imagine a, an average basket of goods that we might buy, uh, and but obviously what is in and out of it depends. You know, reflects uh, where we are as a society. So currently, out this uh, it's been announced this morning, out of the basket, non-chart CDs. 
Uh, the rise of uh, music streaming has seen CD sales declining. So any CDs from outside the top 40 charts are now out of the basket. I didn't know you could even buy a but CD. Yeah, are any, why are any of them in the basket? Yeah, I was surprised by that. Uh, Alka Pops, apparently they were overrepresented. So this low-weighted item fizzles out, apparently. And digital compact cameras, uh, because we're all taking photos on our, on our iPhones now, presumably, in e-bikes, which have become more popular in recent years, uh, home security cameras, which is obviously people who like to snoop on their neighbours while they're out of uh, the way from home. And yes, frozen berries are in, apparently because of the popularity of homemade smoothies. Uh, does this ring true for you, Rachel? <laughs> I'm afraid so. I don't think I've ever bought any of those things. Um, but our neighbours are installing a home alarm system. Yeah. So that is obviously quite popular. Um, I, I, I don't know. I think it's fascinating what they who makes these decisions. Yeah. Um, the e-bikes are definitely, obviously, on the on the rise. But I would have thought a lot of people rent them rather than buying them. Yeah, I don't know. So, or maybe maybe that's included the cost of renting as well. Somebody's just yeah. um, tweet. Uh, Jimmy's just tweeted it. I've bought CDs recently from smaller acts I've seen live recently, and are not usually heard on mainstream radio. Uh, Els Bailey, Chantel McGregor, Band of Friends, and Joanne Sean Taylor, etc. They deserve the extra money they get from CDs. So well, they're no, outside the top 40. So, so they're going to be outside the top okay. 40. So, so they can put up their prices as much as they like mm. now and it won't affect the rate of inflation. Um, very good. Oh, it was also sort of slightly, the slightly oh, e-bikes and frozen berries. But these are people who are boring people, aren't they? <laughs> people who've got, oh, yeah, I like to be able to see the what Amazon. What about sourdough starter? Exactly. Whereas, yeah, I'm all for Alka Pops. <laughs> I'm with Libby. Bring back CDs and Alka Pops. A, a, a G&T and a tin on a train. That's what we all want. <laughs> Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester there. And of course, you can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's our budget airline. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. So we are talking the economy. It's a Matt Chorley's budget airline getting lift-off today as we go around the world to take a look at the economy. So the UK economy actually grew by 0.3% in January. But the trouble is, it's all just a league table game, isn't it? How do we compare to the rest of the G7? We had the fastest economic growth in the G7 last year. This year, the fastest growth in the G7. The mission. Secure the highest sustained growth in the G7. But how do we actually do that? So the UK was one of the first countries to emerge from the pandemic, meaning that between 2021 and 2022, the UK did indeed have the fastest economic growth in the G7. This year, however, is forecast to have the lowest. So we thought we'd take a look behind the headlines. Is the UK really falling behind? And how are other countries dealing with tax and spend and inflation and all of that? So it's time to hop aboard Chorley's Budget Airline. As we fly across the G7, ahead of the budget on Wednesday. Budget airline heads to Paris first. Charles Bremner is our correspondent there. Morning, Charles. Morning, Matt. So what is the state of the French economy right now? French economy is doing not, not all that badly. It's doing rather better than the British economy. The, the growth this year is expected to be 2.6%. Last year it was 0.6%. But... Uh, President Macron also has managed, sorry, to bring down, uh, bring inflation under control to some extent. It's not gone no higher than 7%, which is better than the UK. And it's slightly coming down now. And they say it will be down by the end of the year. But there's a big but. But France pays the highest taxes, almost the, well, one of the highest tax countries in the world overall. And the debt is very, very high. And not enough of the population works. So uh, France <laughs> is not, not, out of the, not out of the woods. Um, and how uh, how has Macron done that? And is it popular? Because uh, we've talked before about, you know, particularly what the changes he's making to pensions to try and sort of make his sums add up uh, has proven deeply unpopular. Yes, he's he's very unpopular, partly as a result of his handling of his current reform, which is the pension reform. He's pushing the retirement age up to 64, which is deemed to be brutal and cruel and inhuman in France, 64, from 62. And he, the, he has not managed to persuade the French that if they carry on as they are because of life expectancy, then they will be paying, they will getting themselves even more into debt. And France has already 100, um, 113% of uh, GDP as, as debt, which is well above the European average, which is 93. But, but people are not buying this and they're demonstrating and um, the, the trains are on strike again today. Uh, that all sounds um, horribly familiar. Uh, thank you very much for that, Charles. Charles Bowman there in uh, Paris, giving us the picture in France. So it's back on uh, the Chorley's budget airline. And we are heading to the USA now. Emily Tamkin is our reporter. Like the United States will manage to avoid a recession, and the job market is strong. Job growth is expanding without wage growth. Wage increases are smaller than expected, or perhaps hoped for. And the job market is especially strong for those at the bottom of the wage scale. For those at the top, particularly in the tech sector, it's a different story. The United States isn't out of the proverbial woods yet. The effects of Federal Reserve hikes are still being felt. The recent failure of Silicon Valley Bank, or SVB, 
appears to be one such result of Fed tightening, and other such issues will come up with time. U.S. President Joe Biden has vowed that the banking industry can weather the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Biden, whose 2024 budget calls for tax hikes and more domestic spending, has also warned that the Republican Party is a threat to economic recovery, and the White House and Congress are once again gearing up for a standoff over the budget and the economy more broadly. That's the uh, picture in America. Emily Tamkin there reporting for us. Right, we're getting back on the plane now. The budget airline heading to Germany, where the Times' is Oliver Moody reports. The mongers of doom have had a field day with the German economy over the past 12 months or so. There were warnings that runaway inflation and the loss of Russian gas would lead to deindustrialization, a rage winter of protests from people unable to afford their energy bills, and a recession deeper than anything inflicted by the pandemic. So far, none of these things has actually come to pass. Uh, instead, economic output has essentially flatlined shrinking slightly at the end of last year, but returning to very marginal growth over the past couple of months, while industrial production has held up in most sectors. It's not pretty, but nor is it anything like as bad as it might have been. That is partly because Germany spent most of 2022 chucking enormous sums of money at every spare gas shipment on the market, and partly because the state is spending up to 200 billion euros on a so-called protective shield to defend businesses and households against the ravages of inflation. Oliver Moody in Berlin for us. So that's uh, the picture in Germany. Our budget airline now flying to Italy. Uh, another member of the G7, Philip Willen, Willen, is in Rome for us. Hi, Philip. What does the uh, Italy's economy look like right now? Well, uh, I think it could be worse. Um, things look um, reasonably cheerful here uh, particularly um, uh, tourism, which is obviously uh, very important uh, for the country, uh, seems to be benefiting from the uh, pent-up desire for travel that um, was uh, uh, clamped down on uh, during COVID. Uh, and so um, masses of people have been coming from all over the world uh, to Italy and um, uh, Italian hotels and restaurants. Uh, and businesses in general have been uh, capitalising on that. Um, just walking around Rome, you can see that the place is, is full and uh, there's no real tail-off, uh, sort of seasonal tail-off because, uh, because of the winter. Uh, so I think that that's um, an indicator that things are looking uh, quite uh, uh, promising for uh, the economy at the moment. And is, does that feed through to how Italians are feeling right now? Are they feeling the pinch, rising inflation, or is, is the government getting sort of on the front foot to, to help those who are struggling? Uh, well, I think Italy has benefited from um, the fact that um, uh, during the pandemic, the uh, populist five-star movement was in power, uh, and uh, they were all about helping the uh, poorest and most marginalised people in society. Um, uh, universal basic income, for example, was uh, their signature policy. Uh, and they also put a lot of money into uh, tax credits to uh, get the uh, housing uh, construction uh, market moving. Um, all of these things are quite expensive and uh, eventually have to be paid for. Uh, but I think that um, took off uh, the, the worst of the pinch uh, at a time when things could have been uh, going very 
badly for uh, the poorer sectors of society. Uh, and now the new government has to uh, decide uh, how to take things forward, uh, what's going to be affordable in the long term, uh, and also uh, put their own mark on, on things because they don't want uh, five-star claiming the credit for uh, things going forward. It's really interesting. Now. I suppose that right, right around the world, countries reacted to the pandemic in different, in different policy responses, but they all proved incredibly expensive. And at some point, um, you have to pay that back. Will that mean tax rises or spending cuts, do you think, in Italy? Um, I think they're trying to um, avoid both uh, of those. <laughs> it, it, Italy is in a fortunate position in that uh, it was the first um, European country to be really hard hit by uh, COVID. Uh, and the European Union uh, agreed to give uh, an enormous amount of money in uh, uh, loans uh, and oh, grants okay. to get the uh, to basically to modernize the uh, economy. Uh, so they just have to get their act together and uh, spend the money coming from Brussels uh, in an efficient way. Uh, and there, there really is the opportunity to transform the economy uh, uh, just uh, right at this uh, at this moment. It's fascinating. That. Thank you uh, for that. Uh, that was Philip Willen, who is in Rome for us. So from Italy, uh, we're now heading to Canada. Sabrina Maddow has the latest there. The economy is a huge issue for Canadian voters right now, and that's across all demographics in the polls. Uh, the housing issue is particularly important for young people. We have what we've been calling a housing crisis, and that's because over the course of the pandemic, housing in a lot of areas went up 20, 30, 40% year over year. And young people just can't afford to buy in. So we have generations locked out of housing. And now you combine that with the Bank of Canada increasing interest rates, people have an even harder time qualifying for a mortgage or affording their monthly payment. So that's a major concern. So we're seeing actually a trend that we haven't really seen before in Canada, where large numbers of young people and young families are leaving cities to go to more rural areas that they wouldn't have considered before. Inflation continues to be an issue. The Bank of Canada has, as I mentioned, been hiking rates, but we're still not down to its target, which is 2% inflation. We're pretty well above that at the moment. And the Bank of Canada has, for the moment, indicated that they're going to pause hikes. However, we often follow what the Federal Reserve does in the U.S., because if we don't, it tanks our dollar. And they look like they're poised to keep hiking. So that could create a really interesting conflict over the next few months. Another major issue, cost of living. We're seeing prices, especially at grocery stores, come under the microscope. So our parliament actually had several of the top grocery store CEOs to question them about their profits and whether they're raising prices more than inflation would justify. One of our political parties, the NDP, has dubbed this greedflation, and that's been quite a popular term here. And there's also been talk of whether our government will tax some of these profits back. So that will probably be a big debate in the near future. That's a picture in Canada, uh, Sabrina Madhu there reporting for. So our final stop then on Chorley Budget Airline. Uh, we're off to Japan now. Gavin Blair's in Tokyo. 
Japan has posted average 2% quarterly growth since the summer of 21, as it's emerged more slowly than most other economies from the pandemic restrictions. For this year, 2023, the IMF is predicting growth of 1.8%, which is at the higher end of the OECD. One example of this uh, late emergence from the pandemic was that Japan only opened up its borders to foreign travellers in late September last year. And prior to the pandemic, it was enjoying a, a true inbound tourist boom. Nearly 32 million people visited the country in 2019, which was the seventh consecutive new year of, of record growth. For the economy to recover properly, those uh, numbers will have to return to something close to that level. As for government economic policies, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida has made much of his signature new form of capitalism initiatives over the last year, talked about investing in people and creating a virtuous circle. However, it's been so far short on concrete policy details, and to most observers, it's looked very much like the old capitalism. On a plus, unemployment is low at 2.4%. Um, it's fallen again recently. However, part of that is accounted for by Japan's demographics. The uh, shrinking population and dwindling number of young people has shrunk the workforce for decades now. The government has described the demographic time bomb as a, a true emergency and something that has to be tackled now or never. Uh, they've recently increased subsidies for child rearing. However, this isn't the first time this has been tried and such measures have made little dent in the past. The problem now, of course, is that the shrinking number of young people means that even if those young people started suddenly having more babies, it wouldn't be enough to replace the population that's been lost. Gavin Blair in Tokyo for us. We've just been round the G7 on our budget airline to get a sense of what is happening in some of the other big economies around the world ahead of Jeremy Hunt's first budget on Wednesday. Let's find out what all of that means for the Chancellor now. Maureen Khan is the Times' economics editor and joins me. Morning, Maureen. Morning. What was really striking listening to our reporters around the world is that, and maybe this is obvious, but lots of the problems that we think are affecting the British economy are affecting the economies around the world. There's a housing crisis in Canada. There's an ageing population problem in Japan. There's high energy bills in Germany. Britain's got a bit of everything. Exactly. And I think the UK has long found itself in, I think, something the governor of the Bank of England said, which is called the worst of both worlds, <laughs> which is that it has the, the shrinking labour market, the tight labour market that the US is experiencing, which is why the US economy is red hot. But it also has the energy crisis that the Europeans are suffering from. And by, you know, geographically being in the middle of those two uh, you know, economic neighbours. We're actually suffering from the two worst economic trends that most rich world countries have seen since the beginning of 2022. And that's a partial explanation for why the UK's growth will be sluggish for most of this year and probably a lot of next year, why we still haven't reached our pre-pandemic si size. And then there's the other idiosyncratic factors of which Brexit is definitely one of them. But I think as for the Chancellor, I think he'll probably stand up in the House of Commons on Wednesday and sort of celebrate some of the recent GDP figures and and sort of sigh a bit of relief at the fact that we're not in a recession. But this is definitely not uh, the end of this period of stagnation. We're probably just about in the middle of it, I think. Is there anything, putting Brexit to one side, because that's a whole other can of worms, uh, is there anything that the government could have done to address some of these long-term problems? Or is actually... Like you were saying, that they're 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 structural. We're we're part European, part American um, economy. That's how we've ended up in this in this problem. 
the government would argue that it's been doing a lot of crisis fighting, but we are also in the relatively unprecedented era of having at least four chancellors in 12 months. And that's not a recipe that, you know, will give you long term structural thinking. I think the political instability is also one of those idiosyncratic factors. The fact that we have had changes of government, albeit within the same party, who have slightly different ideas about how to do things. So, you know, we had a leveling up strategy under Boris Johnson. Liz Truss wanted to go for a, a slightly more you know, ambitious and bold growth strategy, which is about cutting taxes. Jeremy Hunt is now stabilizing the public finances by maintaining and raising taxes. So the long term strategic thinking, which I think probably should have happened in the immediate post Brexit era. So what kind of economy does the UK want to be after Brexit? It hasn't really been done because there's just not been enough bandwidth which is, I think, a generous interpretation, not enough bandwidth among uh, the Treasury officials and government officials to do the strategic thinking because of the political instability, then add on to that a pandemic and a war. And all of it is sort of, you know, we're in a short term period of uh, policy making, and that's not going to stop because we've got an election coming up, which is another you know, <laughs> recipe for more short termism for the next 18 months. I suppose it, it goes back to the whole thing. I think even Rachel Reeves was making this point last week that a return to boring government is a good thing because boring means not chopping and changing the whole time. And that actually, we talk about the economy sometimes as if it's a sort of uh, organism all of its own. It's just human beings and people, whether in the, in the, the, um, uh, stock market or if they are starting businesses, investing in businesses. And what consistency is probably worth far more than any whizzy-bang idea that uh, the, the latest Chancellor might come up with. Yes, I mean, certainty about the business environment, which again, Brexit didn't really help that. Certainty about the tax environment, Liz Trust didn't really help that. We're now in a, in a mode where I think actually some parts of economic policy are becoming exciting. I mean, I speak this from a low base, but it's kind of what I have to do every day. But we're moving into an era of, I think, quite radical industrial policy around the world. And this is industrial policy, which is about basically throwing taxpayer money at green industries, which is what the US is doing. And maybe I think the Europeans are going to respond. Britain really isn't really part of that, I think, slightly dynamic debate about what happens to supply chains, what kind of green industry we want to have, what economic security in the 21st century looks like when you have, you know, quite, you know, fractious geopolitics. That's another, I think, area where we want uh, and we would hope that the UK has an understanding of where it wants to position itself, you know, between the US, Europe and China, uh, closer to the US, closer to Europe. We're not really sure about these things. And that's another thing I think businesses would like some some certainty on, because the truth is that if you're running a battery cell company or trying to develop green hydrogen, um, the US government is throwing money at you right now. And it's pretty tempting to up sticks, leave Britain and, and go and set up a factory there. Why not? That's really interesting. Now, but let's take a look at what we might actually get from Jeremy Hunt on Wednesday. There'll be more efforts to encourage the over 50s, long-term sick and disabled and benefit claimants back to work. Uh, he's expected to cancel the planned £500 hike in average energy bills, which is due to come into force uh, next month. There's talk that he might increase uh, the amount that you can put in your pension tax-free, raising the £40,000 cap. We're hearing today there's an extra £5 billion for the defence. Well, that's much less than Ben Wallace uh, wanted. Uh, there's also the question of uh, public sector pay deals as strikes continue. And you've got Conservative MPs pushing for tax cuts. I mean, even to stand still on lots of those things, uh, it's going to cost lots of money. Are you expecting this... Uh, to be an exciting budget. Well, there's always lots of talks of rabbits out of hats, uh, Maureen. Do you think we'll get many rabbits? 
I think we've given that UK budgets are now made for the consumption of investors and financial markets as much as they are voters. That definitely limits the room for surprises because there's not there's not too much appetite for surprises. We're also I'm also speaking to you at the beginning of a week where the US government has effectively had to bail out a bank and the UK government has only been spared that because somebody has come in to buy the UK arm of of Silicon Valley Bank. So you know, things are breaking in the financial system. That is another recipe to say, let's not surprise people with too much fiscal expansion or tax cuts that nobody's really expecting so will it be boring yes definitely and if it's relative to the to the mini budget then we're you know all the budgets from for i think now until a few years are going to be boring in comparison i think the big question is all those things that you've reeled off so a couple of them i think the big question is are they enough is it enough to get people back into the workforce by helping them put a bit more and take away a bit more out of their pension pots or changing some tax incentives? Or is actually the problem, as we keep hearing from many economists and also the Bank of England, is that people are not coming back to the workforce because they're sick and they're on waiting lists or ever increasing uh, to access healthcare, And that's the main sort of bottleneck that is stopping people coming back from work. So can these tweaks and sort of incentive changes actually make a substantive difference. Of course, the Chancellor would tell us they will, but I think the jury is out on whether that's that's bold enough action to actually tackle a very chronic problem of people falling out of the workforce, which we've seen for the last two years. Uh, just finally then, Marine, as we look ahead to Wednesday, what's the thing that you'll be most keeping an eye out for? What's the figure or the policy or the the, the, the thing that the economics editors will be will be most looking out for on Wednesday? Well, I mean, we're quite a sober lot, but I, I'm going to read the OBR's forecast pretty carefully um, because I think the initial one we had in November was made a lot of assumptions about growth, which I think were too optimistic. We expect some of them to be pared back. But it'll be interesting just what the OBR calculate as this you know, magical fiscal headroom that the Chancellor has. And we've had various figures from 30 billion to 160 billion in the last week. So I'll be interested to read that and also how the Chancellor takes that number. And then if he wants to be prudent and say, well, I'm going to save half of this and spend half of it or I'm going to spend most of it or save most of it that's going to be interesting to sort of determine what the politics of this budget are um, if he wants to be very very sensible and basically squirrel a lot of it away to give away closer to the election or actually if he thinks right now is the right time to do to be a bit more stimulative and and give people more money back in their pockets that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 